Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the show. I'm Catherine Murphy. We're having a comprehensive review around our policy detail. We're not having a review about our principles. That's Mark Butler the Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy. And our principles on climate change are utterly clear and unshakable. In this episode, we're talking about the May election and where that leaves Labor on climate change. Listen up. Mark Butler, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. So I'll start with an easy question. Do you think Labor's climate change policy won you votes at the last federal election or lost you votes? Well, I have a particular view, I guess. But what I think is really important about the wash up from what was a devastating loss for us on May 18th is that we're conducting a deep, thorough, comprehensive, and I hope unsparing review led by Jay Weatherall and Craig Emerson. And ultimately, I think they're going to be coming to conclusions about the impact of one policy area or another on the result. And I don't really want to preempt that. Um, Having said... I don't, sorry, I don't want to cut you off, but do you think that their review will be capable, uh, and I don't mean this as a negative reflection on either of the individuals, both of whom I respect greatly, but do you think that their review will have the capacity to be able to make pronouncements on the impact of particular policies? Because... You know, do, do, will I have enough data? Will I have enough insight? Do you, do you think you're actually going to get that intel or is it going to be feelings about what might have happened? Well, I suspect it will be a, a mix of not necessarily feelings, but anecdotal feedback, educated opinion of people who've been playing in politics for a very long time and a good analysis of what data we do have available to us. And there's more data coming out, the ANU study and a range of other pieces of work that I know they're pouring over pretty closely. But this this is an art, not a science mm. politics. And so, you know, there, there are significant matters of judgment here. My own view, though, about climate change is that it was not a mistake to take an ambitious climate change policy to the election because I think there is more and more evidence. Only recently we've seen the Lowy Institute work, which is a very reputable longitudinal piece of work that's been going for many years now, studying community attitudes to climate change. The Australia Institute State of the Climate report that they inherited from the Climate Institute, Mm -hmm. even News Poll last week rated climate change as the second most important issue for the Australian people after the cost of living. The Australian people, I'm utterly convinced, are very concerned about the impacts of climate change that are happening right now, and even more concerned about the impacts that will be felt by their children and their grandchildren if we don't take action. And when I say we, Australia, but more more importantly, the global community. So I'm convinced that public opinion in this area 
is broad and it's deep and it's growing. So having an ambitious climate change policy is not, from my point of view, just the right thing to do. It's mm-hmm. not only the right thing to do. It also is in keeping with broad community opinion. What about, though, I mean, the conundrum for Labor this term, isn't it, really, is that you're right. That's what all the surveys say, that Australians are more worried about the climate than at any stage that they've been for a decade, basically. It is an absolute front of mind issue. But there are a handful of seats that where arguably your climate change policy was problematic for you. Coal seats, regional Queensland seats. And I say arguably because it gets back to that evidence point, right? Like, are we actually going to get evidence that this was a problem or not? But let's just accept conventional wisdom for a minute, right? That that cost you. In coal basins. Well, so, I think it's potentially more, you know, I mean, no, no, well, I, I, I course, really do yes, want this, <laughs> I, I really genuinely do want this review to be unsparing and ruthless. And, I, and I've said over the last week, I expect it to be deeply uncomfortable for many of us. And I think that's the only way in which we're going to make sure for our supporters around the community that we're in the best shape possible to win in 2022. And so I will come to the question of coal communities, mm, but mm. but more broadly across the, the broad sweep of the Australian community, I think the review will deal with questions about in more fine detail than the broad question of whether it's the right thing to take an ambitious climate change policy. Drilling into some of the details, were some of the specific policies that we took good, bad or indifferent? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, are we communicating about climate change in the way in which is the is going to shift public opinion and shift voters? This is a challenge Western democracies or democracies across the world are having. How do you communicate this devilishly complex challenge that many people, myself included, sometimes find a little overwhelming with incredibly long time periods in a way that, that is digestible and will shift voter opinion. I mean, I want the review to dig into those questions in a broad sense, but you're right to identify that, that I don't think there's any real debate that we had a challenge in the sort of perceived interface between our climate policy and the viability of coal communities, mm. particularly in central Queensland and the Hunter Valley. And I think that is something that we are going to have to work hard on dealing with over the next couple of years. But how do you resolve it? Well, I mean, I think it's I think it's principally a, a byproduct of some pretty effective scare campaigns run from the right and from the left, that, that our climate policies were going to have a direct impact on these export thermal coal communities, when in actual fact, nothing that happens in this building in Canberra really is going to impact the viability of those communities one way or the other. What is happening to those communities, whether they're growing, whether they're flat or whether they're shrinking, is going to be determined by the state of the global thermal coal market and decisions taken by trading partners, whether they're China, India, some of the big export markets we've had for decades like JKT, Japan, Korea and Taiwan. Mm. Not decisions taken in this building as much as chest thumping by Matt Canavan on the one hand or the Greens Party on the other would try to indicate that this is at the heart of domestic climate policy. So making that distinction and dealing with the realities of domestic climate policy that are focused on our domestic electricity sector, our big industrial emitters, our transport sector, our land sector, and recognising that that what's happening in the thermal coal export community is something quite separate indeed, I think, is our big challenge, particularly in the face of the fact that we're getting wedged by by both sides, on yeah, both sides no, no. on this question. Uh, that, that Bob is... Brown's convoy just being the most, I think, blatant example of an attempt 
deliberately designed to divide the community rather than bring it together. But in terms of the coal dilemma, I accept your rationale on what's happening in the thermal coal market is well beyond an Australian climate regulation. I mean, that's self-evident, right? But there is a link. There is a link, though. If you if you have an ambitious emissions reduction target, then, you know, you're, you're pulling more coal out of the electricity sector. You know, it, people can read the play. Like, so you can't, well, I don't think, can you? Can you can you sort of go to a coal community and say, well, actually, it's it's what's happening in the global zeitgeist. That's the issue. It's not climate regulation. When they're going to say to you, yes, it is climate regulation. It's climate regulation globally and domestically that's going to drive this trend even faster. So, how do you how do you answer those questions? Well, I think this is this is the challenge. I mean, they are very difficult questions, but ultimately, it's not you know not it's not a vote for the Chinese administration or the Indian administration that was taking place on May 18th. It was a a vote for the Australian government that is not going to impact the viability of an export coal operation in the Hunter Valley or the Bowen Basin or, if it ever happens, the Galilee Basin Mm. for that matter. But I accept that that the the general sort of zeitgeist, I think you described it as, Catherine, the general discussion about the, the profound transition that is going to happen in the global economy, including a very carbon-intensive economy like Australia's, is hard to separate out from the, you know, between the global and the Australian levels mm. of regulation. Mm. I accept mm. that, but mm. but you know that's the challenge. That is the challenge to 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 try and make those things a little clearer. Where there are other political interests, as I say again, from the right and from the far left, that are deliberately trying to muddy the water. But how do you then? And, you know, we can't answer this in this conversation, nor are you going to give me Labor's new climate policy in this conversation. This conversation is about trying to sort of work through these issues more conceptually, right? So, but how do you... Set, what, so what, what you're saying is you go into a coal community and you say, look, basically the driver is what's happening overseas. It's not what we're doing domestically, except it is. Well, well it's just not. Well, how it's is it not? not? How is it not? Well, well, well. you can either take an existing mine in the Hunter Valley that's been operating for some time or, or a, a newer proposal in, in Queensland. What happens to that mine, whether it's able to, to wash its face, as the saying is, mm. or whether it goes under, is not going to be determined at all by what happens because in this building. A, because it's, it's going to be a function deter- of the export market. It's, it's a function, direct function of the export market. So if, for example, you are Matt Canavan and you beat your chest and say the future of the export industry, the thermal coal export industry in Australia lies in India, well, it's important to look at what the Indian government is doing and its view about thermal coal imports because it still has a policy, the International Energy Agency confirms, of phasing out thermal coal imports. It wants to become completely reliant upon its own domestic coal industry. Mm. So, you know, what what Matt Canavan uh, thinks about that or what this building thinks about that doesn't matter a hoot. And ultimately, this is a decision that will be taken by a democratically elected Indian government or some other export. um, How rude. Some export market, you know, so so that's really that's really the point. Now, yes, it's all part of the broader climate debate because mm. this is not an Australian issue. This is a global issue. Yeah, uh, and decisions that are being taken by our trading partners have a very real impact on 
regional communities that have really been built up around these export coal operations. Very real impact on jobs there. And I understand why people feel so passionately about this and and, and want to be able to have some agency in it. Mm. But it is our responsibility as politicians to speak truth and say, well, when you vote in an Australian election, what that's going to influence is A, B, C and D. It's not going to influence what the Indian government does or the Chinese government does. But do you seriously say, though, that you went to the last election not speaking truth? Was that the problem? Well, no, when I say we, I mean, I I think the system generally... I mean, I think the system generally, because I, I think there was there was too much voice in this debate. Again, I say from the right and the left, mm. seeking to pretend that that actually who was elected to to office in this building in Canberra was going to have an impact on the viability of one thermal coal operation or the other. But, and I just don't think that is telling the truth. No, sure. Okay. But then you have people uh, in your show, like Joel Fitzgibbon, who had a massive swing to One Nation or against him, obviously, in his coal seat, who is positioning at the moment, he's talking about bipartisanship is important in climate change. Now, that's that's fine in theory, except, at, well, and actually better than fine better than fine, in theory, would be a blessing. It's the holy grail in yeah. climate policy, of as course. we've seen around the world. Of course. I'm not... Only those nations, at least democracies, that are that are, that are taking serious climate action are doing so on the basis I'm of not, bipartisanship. I'm not, being, mm. I'm not meaning to be flippant, but there is a problem with bipartisanship inherently in the Australian system in that the Australian government at this point is, is putting forward climate policies that are not consistent with the science, that will not deliver on on, you know, the the alleged undertakings in the policy. So there is a risk, is there not, though, for Labor in having to manage down your own level of ambition in order to meet a government that's refusing to budge? Isn't Isn't that a trap? And it won't happen. We are not. We are not going to change our position to get to a level of of profound irresponsibility like the government's. I mean, mean, our position, let me be utterly clear. Our position in climate is unshakable. As Anthony has said, we're having a comprehensive review around our policy detail. We're not having a review about our principles. And our principles on climate change are utterly clear and unshakable. And that is to to implement the Paris Agreement, which is to ensure that global warming is kept way below two degrees and to pursue efforts around a 1.5 degree threshold. It's to make sure that our economy is net zero emissions by the middle of the century. It's to make sure that we have a series of medium term targets that are consistent with those principles and guided by the best available scientific and economic advice. I mean, those, those principles are not up for review. They are unshakable. And if you listen, for example, to the first speeches of all of our new caucus members, you really get a sense of the degree to which strong climate action, action on the climate emergency, is is just as much a part of the Labor mission in 2019 Mm. as our defence of the age pension, our defence of fair workplace laws. I think that's true. I think it's pretty obvious from the, the contributions and not only from next gen or new arrival Labor people from people of your vintage as well. Mm. I think that, but if it's given... Vintage, you make me sound so senior. Well, well, you and me, (laughs) we are vintage. Um, But if, and I'm not meaning to single out Fitzgibbon, but he's the one talking about bipartisanship, right? So 
What does that mean? But he's also talking about the principles of the Paris Agreement. I've heard him do it in recent days. And carbon I mean, pricing, I mean, he, sure. He's not, he's not talking about us going to the lowest common denominator. He's talking about the need for, from, a, from, a, from the perspective of someone who represents uh, a long, long-standing coal community, the need for the government to get serious about these transition issues that are inevitable, they're inescapable, they're unavoidable. So he's not setting up, well, he's not the principal decision maker anyway, but it will be a collective decision how you retool, how you redraft these policies. He's not signalling that uh, Labor will uh, meet the government at the lowest common denominator. No, I don't think anything that Joel has said could be taken that way. And as I said, there is a very clear Labor consensus about these principles. You might not have said that 25 years ago. Mm. You know, there were strong voices about the principles, against the principles. There aren't any anymore. You just don't hear any Labor voice against those bedrock principles I talked about. Mm. What about language? Because you've mentioned, obviously, Labor is kind of wedged between the right and the left in terms of this debate. There's a, you know, I sound entirely pessimistic in this conversation. I really need to, you know, snazz myself up or something. But there is, there's there's another issue, isn't there? As, as we pass through these cycles where we have elections and the climate loses, right, of which we've had a number now, people get more, people who are concerned, people who are activated on this issue become more and more concerned about the lack of action. So the debate gets heightened and the language intensifies. And then we're in situations like, you know, kids going on strike for school yep. and people talking about climate emergencies and, you know, which is which is correct. I mean, in, it, look, in terms of the science, it's correct. But in terms of the politics, is it helpful? Well, um at, at one level, no. I mean, for example, I'm not I'm not sure it's realistic to have a debate in this parliament now about a climate emergency. There is no prospect of that getting up. I mean, the government the government can't agree on whether climate change is real, let alone whether it's an emergency or not. But I completely understand why members of the broader community are starting to get active, are starting to get organised around around groups and actions that do reflect the fact that this is an emergency. I think it's an emergency. I've said so in the parliament on a number of occasions. The AMA very recently described this as a climate and health emergency, reflecting decisions that have been taken by their American and their British counterparts. So, I, I mean, I think it is really valuable to see the community build pressure on this building to just get real about but, this well, issue. And, and, and it's, it's, it's farmers. You know, we've had Farmers for Climate Action here. We've had, we've had health professionals, doctors for the environment, a range of other medical groups here this week talking about the emergency. We are having the kids strike on, on, on Friday. Business has just shifted profoundly over the last couple of years in its view, largely as a result of the pressure being brought to bear by investors and lenders and regulators about climate risk mm. now being potentially a liability for company directors that don't take it seriously. Yeah. At some point, that pressure is going to build on the government to do something, yeah, to well, shift position. Well, I don't expect it to happen this year, but but it is going to happen. Well, it's yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I'll get get to Morrison in a sec because that that is moderately interesting. Morrison and the next little bit, what he does or doesn't do. But but in terms of look, I agree it's a climate emergency. You agree it's a climate emergency. If you know you're a voter in regional Queensland or 
you may not agree that it's a climate emergency sure. and you may in fact be repelled by this language mm. and these formulations. So on the balance, I mean, I think interpreting what you're saying, you're saying the call to action outweighs the negative connotations in a way that you think it activates the community probably on balance over time rather than than sort of puts it in a quagmire. I guess my concern is that that it becomes so it becomes more and more polarized. This yep. issue becomes more and more polarized, and try but, to... but ultimately, I can't control that, and you can't control no, that. No. I, I mean, I think you know that, that these things are happening organically, and you are going to have a variety of calibrations here. I mean, big business is not talking about climate emergencies, but they are talking about climate risk. They are talking about financial risk, transition risk, and so on and so forth. But, you know, frankly, whether I like it or not, these these groups are emerging mm. around the community because mm. of their profound degree of frustration at the lack of action in this building oh, on something they regard as, I mean, I think the really interesting and frankly disquieting dynamic is what's happening among young people and the strike on, on on Friday because when I meet with young people and I have teenage kids myself but when I meet with young people which I do regularly about this issue I can see it in their eyes that they think that our generation is from a different planet oh, no. and the gap between their generation and the rest of us in terms of how they perceive the respective worldview I think is at risk of becoming wider than we've seen since the late 60s. And we know what happened out of that. Mm. Some very good things came out of it, but there was a lot of turmoil. Mm. And um, But yeah. didn't the Prime Minister just sort of, in a way, help his election victory by styling himself as the antidote to activism? Isn't that what he did? Well, I mean... Didn't he, didn't he basically tell the public, don't you worry, guys, it, we can go slightly back to the future and I'll keep it all the same, nothing has to change? Didn't he do that? And mm. didn't he win? Well, he he did win. Uh, I'm, I'm acutely aware of the fact that he won and they're at pains to remind us of it in the question time that just we, we just had today. Quite why he won, I think, is not that simple. I mean, I think there, you know, does does require some really deep analysis why he won. And I mean, I think the the one of the real pities of the election result is that I think there is a message that the coalition has taken that the election result was a resounding endorsement of their decision twelve months or so ago to dump Turnbull yeah. and to dump the national energy guarantee yeah. and to tack right particularly yeah. on climate, yeah. and to accept the Tony Abbott thesis, which is this should be a weapon. This mm. should not ever be an opportunity for bipartisanship and the coming together of the parliament on policy. This always has to be weaponised. And I think there are many in the coalition party room that feel emboldened by the election result on this, which is going to make it much tougher. Now, the Prime Minister talks about quiet Australians um, as being the sort of driver of the election result. You know the degree mm. to which, which may or that's may not right be true. Not. It's, it's yes. a bit of it's a bit of marketing spin, I think, mm. from an ad guy. Really, yeah, sure. it's much more complex than yeah, that. Of course, it is. But but you do you do have this tension now between groups really getting much more active because of their level of frustration mm. at the lack of climate action, and a coalition party room, or at least a big faction in the coalition party room, that feels profoundly emboldened. That, that they made, it was painful, but it was absolutely the right thing to do to tack right last year on this question. Well, let's, with Morrison, I agree with your broad prognosis, but there is there is a slight counterfactual to this, which is that Morrison 
has agreed to produce a 2050 strategy next year in the PIF communique, for example. That was agreed. And obviously by the next COP, the next Conference of the Parties climate meeting in London at the end of 2020, yeah, yep. 2020 there will be pressure, obviously, because the Brits are sane on this issue, unlike us. So perhaps he tries to build some sort of a 2050 strategy over the next 12 months. I discovered today, actually, that uh, Teddy Roosevelt is a particular hero of his, and Roosevelt was a conservationist, which is sort of... Started a national park system Well, exactly, exactly. Kind of struggled to get your mind around that, actually, by the record. But anyway, notwithstanding, right? Also a bit of a fan of military conquest. So he was a a man of... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Conflict. Co- yeah, well, sure. Let's uh, let's not delve too deeply into that. But what do you think? Looking at looking at the next twelve months and Morrison, I know what you've said about them weaponising, and I agree that there there is that kind of default. However, do you think he could shift? Yes, uh, I, I think is the answer to that. I think there is the potential for shift. I, I, I don't think he is Tony Abbott on this. I don't think he's Malcolm Turnbull on this. I don't, I'm not sure he has any particular deep beliefs about mm. this one way or the other. I think his assessment will be a political assessment about his political interest. And I think that's that's where I think it comes back to the pressure that builds, the extent to which pressure externally builds on the Prime Minister and the Treasurer in particular. Uh, I, I, and I was surprised that the, that, um, the Prime Minister appointed Angus Taylor back into this portfolio. I, I think it was. Why do you think he did that? Well, to placate the right mm. in the party room. I think it's that it's that simple. Mm, looks um, like he, that. He made a judgment that that was in his political interest, and he'd wear the opprobrium of of people who want you know some consensus here, some sensible policy making. But but I think as the p- business community particularly continues to build their their pressure on this government at a time of real softness in the economy and building headwinds in the economy of the need for a sensible energy policy you know of a need of the need for a climate framework because all of the company directors and if you've watched the AGM season this year compared even just to 2017 there is a profound shift mm, company mm. directors are coming to government coming to parliament and saying they are now under extraordinary pressure yeah by their investors and lenders to come up with a meaningful climate change action plan of their business that's consistent with the Paris Agreement. Regulators are trucking along, ASIC and APRA, the RBA, uh, Treasury, to to ensure that, that the system in Australia is consistent with the task force on climate-related financial disclosures. All of this stuff is happening, but business is saying there's no framework. Mm. There's, there's nothing coming out of the Australian government that allows them to do what they need to do to keep faith with their investors and their lenders and the expectations of regulators. I think if that pressure builds sufficiently, along with community pressure, there is the prospect that Morrison and Frydenberg recognise that, well, actually, it might have, you know, might have um, built them support in the coalition party room, mm. but, but really... Dumping the National Energy Guarantee last year and tacking right on this question was a profound mistake. Mm. We only had the ACCC yesterday again 
recommend that they return to the National Energy Guarantee. You've got the New South Wales Liberal government saying it time and time again. I think there is the prospect that the the leadership of the government will recognise they have to move back to the centre on this. Now, does that mean they're going to become climate warriors? No, Mm -hmm. they're never going to. But can you at least make some baby steps towards breaking down this culture war and demonstrating that if you can achieve bipartisanship in energy, even though we're never going to agree levels of ambition, at least agree some bipartisanship around the rules for investment in renewable energy, then you can build on that. Mm. Do you think that a progressive constituency understands that, the need to start slow in the event that that's where you have to? I mean, I, I, respecting what you've said about there, there will always be a difference in ambition on targets, yeah. and I'm sure many people will be relieved to hear that, but do you think that they understand that sometimes you've got to accept a small bit of what you want in order to work towards a large bit of what you might need? Some yes and some no, and some in between, if I can explain that. I mean, I think many who recognise the reality of this transition to a clean energy economy and support it strongly recognise that you do need a level of bipartisanship to to underpin the massive shift in investment dollars. You know, we've already seen, according to Bloomberg, a drop-off in investment for renewable energy of 50% this year as the renewable energy target drops off because there's after 2020, there's no rules mm. to support renewable energy investment. The Clean Energy Council research indicates the 50% might be generous and next year we'll see even a bigger drop-off in renewable energy. And I think people who look at this stuff carefully understand that a level of bipartisanship is utterly essential to seeing that big shift in dollars. There are then, there are then I think, those whose business model is to create division, mm. like whose business model is to attack us in Labor or from the right to attack the government and make it as difficult as possible to have consensus. I mean, we're building up over, over the next several weeks. It'll be the 10th anniversary of the Greens voting with Tony Abbott to dump the CPRS. I mean, I think a profound mistake that they've never really admitted or conceded. That sort of thing, I think, is is highly damaging. There are then those in between, I think, who feel that is that it is their job to continue to press for higher ambition, mm. that, that do recognise the importance of consensus, but take it as their job to push for higher ambition. And I think that is a legitimate role. You know, I think I think it is legitimate from from our side of politics, so the centre-left progressive side of politics, to have players in the community, to have stakeholders who are consistently pressing us to be more bold, more courageous, more ambitious, recognising, though, that ultimately the goal is to have some policy that's going to underpin real change. Mm. You know, we can't continue in the next decade to have the wars we've had over the last decade. Mm. I mean, the last decade was supposed to be the critical decade. The next decade, I don't know what... Well, we're beyond in critical super, is. We're in super critical decade. Yeah. yeah. If we get to 2030 with the level of inertia we've had over the last decade, we have profoundly let down our children and our grandchildren. Yeah. Um, mechanisms, uh, just quickly. Um, uh, obviously, you've said there'll be a 2050 net zero target, there'll be interim targets. You've, you've flagged that in your general comments, but you might look at some of the policies, uh, the efficacy or political 
difficulties associated with some of the policies. So what are, what are we to take from that as a message? Obviously, you can't answer the question today because there isn't an answer to the question. Mm. But what it, what is the mechanism broadly going to look like? What's the policy going to look like broadly? Well, 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 you know, what we want our policy always to be in this area and in other areas for that matter is for it to be the most effective and efficient way of making change. You know, what I think I've done over the last two terms that I've had this portfolio area is to engage very deeply with all stakeholders, with industry, uh, with think tanks, with environment and climate groups, very intensively, usually over a 12 or 18 month period to, to really road test different models, different mechanisms that could be used, all ultimately aimed at the same endpoint, which I've outlined mm. as our bedrock principles, mm. but mm. making sure we get the most effective, most efficient mechanism in place. What I also know, though, is that this this is not a, a stable, inert canvas that we're looking at. You know, Take transport, for example. The global car industry is moving at a profound pace. Mm. The difference between where the industry was at when I was preparing the 2016 policy and the 2019 policy was yeah, a like quantum difference, particularly because mm. of the advent of electric vehicles. And I expect that that change to have to continue just as quickly over the next three years with costs coming down of lithium-ion batteries in the cars and such like. So it would be, you know, not that I would be inclined to do this anyway, but it would be completely irresponsible of me to think about think now about what our 2022 policy in transport will be, given I don't think we can predict where transport is going to be mm. then. All right. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so very much for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you, as always, to Hannah Izzard and to Miles Martignoni for production. You know the drill, share, subscribe, etc. I'm off to the United States uh, for the next week, but I've already got an episode in the can, which is fascinating for next week. Anyway, till we meet again, go well. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.